Hello, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So this is a recording for patrons of installment number 16 in the history of the United States in 100 Objects. I have been holding off a little bit because I've been congested with <laughs> pollen allergies, but nonetheless I want to keep up with this series. So number 16 is the P.W. Hadley chest. So this is a large oak blanket chest with beech and pine interior and iron fixtures with a lidded upper compartment and lower drawer elaborately carved in the so-called tulip and leaf pattern labeled with the initials P.W. presumably for the original owner of the chest and currently held by the Winter Tour Museum in Delaware. So there are a number of surviving colonial oak chests in America, but this one, the PW chest, is specially significant for historians and collectors, far beyond the average colonial blanket chest, because it is an example of a Hadley chest. So the Hadley chest is a type of chest usually made from carved oak with a top-lidded compartment for blankets, quilts, linens, etc., and a lower drawer for clothing, bonnets, or other personal possessions, and that features three decorated front panels and elaborate vinework and scrollwork carving in, as I mentioned, the tulip and leaf pattern, which features leaves and flowers seen in profile sprouting off of vines. And Hadley chests are a specific style that appeared and flourished in the Connecticut River Valley in western Massachusetts and northern Connecticut between the 1680s and the 1730s. And for a time, it, during the fashion for colonial revival, these chests were highly sought after and prized, were among the most valued and searched for antiques of any sort in America. What makes Hadley chests so special? Why are they significant? Well, the Hadley chest is really the first distinctive regional artistic style ever known to have developed in the English colonies in America. They are not derived from any known European model. And it makes sense that this first distinctive colonial style came about in the Connecticut River Valley. For one thing, it's an area that became fairly heavily populated by colonists in the late 16 and early 1700s. And it's far away from the seacoast. So the people there, although they might have been prosperous, they did not have direct access to high-value goods from Europe. And furthermore, the Connecticut River Valley, it centers on the river, which has some very fertile bottomlands directly along the river banks. And the colonists who were able to colonize, claim, and monopolize those highly fertile lands gave rise to a wealthy local elite who sometimes have been called the river gods the large planters, landowners, and merchants and professionals who grew wealthy off of these fertile, productive lands. 
And the Hadley chests were probably made mainly for this regional elite by a small network of artisans, many of whom trained one another and even often were related or intermarried into one another's families. So it seems that the Hadley chest style flourished as a kind of distinctive fashion in a specific time and place for a specific wealthy market, and then faded out and was largely forgotten, really was entirely forgotten, for about 150 years after it went out of style. But then it was dramatically rediscovered during the craze for colonial revival in the late 18 and early 1900s. So this is one reason why Hadley chests are artistically and aesthetically significant. Another reason that the Hadley chest is important is because it is revealing about the lives of girls and women at a time when they were not discussed nearly as much in the surviving written record. So most of the Hadley chests, nearly all of them, apparently are hope chests, which means that they were made for unmarried girls in order for them to collect important possessions that they might then take into a household as a married woman or sometimes as a single woman, a so-called spinster. She might collect blankets and linens, clothing, bonnets, personal adornments, and then have these already amassed at the time when she then married and left her family's household. So the Hadley chests are not dowry or dower chests. They're sometimes misnamed. They are not dowry chests in the sense that they were not created for a woman upon her marriage. They're not a a wedding gift. They existed beforehand, and they are also not dower chests. They were not made for widows who were taking care of their own households. They were made for the young unmarried daughters of the Connecticut River Valley elite. And once these young women married, they were then taken into families and often passed down matrilineally from mothers to daughters. And hence their survival shows the persistence of girls' identities and the continued attachment to their family backgrounds outside of patrilineal records. So they're often extremely difficult to trace through family lineages because they cut against the patrilineal grain of the written record. And it's significant that these heirlooms that were passed down, usually among women, were in the form of oak chests, and hence they were probably the most durable objects the colonists ever made. A piece of furniture out of joined oak is pretty close to indestructible and also are useful. They can serve for storage or transport, and they, because the Hadley chests have these very elaborate and distinctive decorative designs, they have an aesthetic appeal. And so a significant number of Hadley chests have survived down to the present, several hundred, although probably hundreds of others were also made and lost through the centuries. So in the 1930s, at the sort of later end of the colonial revival craze, a local historian and minister named C.F. Luther wrote a book called The Hadley Chest. And he points out that there are 
some precedents that might have served as a loose sort of inspiration for the tulip and leaf pattern that one sees on Hadley chests. There are in ancient, particularly Hittite art, there are some similar patterns. Also in some medieval illuminated manuscripts, particularly in 11th century Celtic style illuminated manuscripts, you can see a very close pattern. But it doesn't seem that these motifs appeared on furniture until much later in the 15 and 1600s. There are some tulip figures on Flemish furniture. Not surprisingly, tulips, of course, are highly popular in the Netherlands. But the tulip-like form that one sees on a Hadley chest is not exactly the same, and it grows on a vine, which is not at all like a tulip. And so this particular odd combination doesn't really seem to copy anything in nature or in traditional European art. There is one single instance of a very similar pattern that one can see, on a wainscot chair, a sort of heavy carved oak chair from southwestern England, dated 1564, so from the Elizabethan period. And we really can't know whether this one unique, unusual specimen from England from 1564 somehow inspired a colonial furniture maker a hundred years later or more in colonial New England. It's possible, but really, as far as we know, it seems that the Hadley chest style sprang up de novo, was just created on its own by the imagination of some artisan or other in the interior of New England. It is possible that there might be other inspirations that haven't been found. C.F. Luther, for instance, doesn't mention the possibility that there might have been Native American inspiration from the patterns on Algonquian Indians' textiles or basket weaving. And also he doesn't consider the likelihood, I would say, of Dutch influence. The Dutch in New Amsterdam and New Netherlands, or by the late 1600s, New York, as it had been renamed, they were really prolific furniture makers and supplied a lot, especially of the carved oak furniture that was seen around the American colonies. So I would wager that probably something of European Baroque style made its way through these Dutch influences. But Regardless, it's remarkable how the style of the Hadley chest fits into the late Baroque style. It shows active, dynamic, complex lines, completely filling out the space. And one of the remarkable things about Hadley chests is that the carved decoration is not just on a rail or a post or in a coffered panel. Rather, it twines its way all over the entire surface of the chest as if the piece of furniture has been completely overgrown. And in this way, it captures the sense of life, of unstoppable motion, of a living scene. And the sinuous curves also of especially the later Hadley chests evoke 18th century Rococo style, where Baroque sort of moved over further into naturalistic curving lines. And in this way, I think you could say Hadley chests 
not only kept up with, but were really ahead of the styles of the time and anticipated, I would say, 18th century Rococo, albeit in a much more crude, almost primitive colonial form. And the tulip and leaf pattern, it is on all Hadley chests by definition, and it seems to have been almost distinctive to these chests. There are only a few other specimens that have been found of other pieces of oak sculpture that have the tulip and leaf pattern. There are a few Bible boxes also produced in the Connecticut River Valley. There is one example of the pattern on a large, long court table that was probably used in a town meeting house in western Massachusetts, but then later was found being used as a handrail in a tavern in Hatfield, Massachusetts. And there is also one instance of the pattern on a carved doorway from a house in Hatfield that was later taken from the house and donated to the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. So clearly there were joiners or furniture makers at work in the Connecticut River Valley in the late 16 and early 1700s who adopted this motif and used it for several different purposes, but mainly for hope chests. And it became, you could say, kind of the signature of those craftsmen in that specific region. And the style seems to have sprung into being remarkably quickly and again, entirely in the colonies, with no apparent connection to Europe. There is one known precursor or forerunner of the Hadley chests that has the tulip and leaf pattern, but takes a slightly different form, and that is the so-called REB chest, which was made around 1650 for a newly married couple. So this is an example of a wedding gift chest. And the couple was Richard and Elizabeth Brown, who lived in the Boston area in eastern Massachusetts. And we know that it was made by a joiner named Phineas Pratt, who came over from England and settled in Charlestown and made furniture in Charlestown, a town then north of Boston, now part of Boston. And in form, the REB chest is a low, long blanket chest with no drawers and four front panels, so it's very broad. It's more like the traditional style of blanket chest that one would have seen from England, where it was made to be low and long so that people could sit on it. It served as sort of a bench or a sofa at the same time that it stored blankets and linens inside. And the tulip and leaf design is seen only along the top rail. So it's possible that this little instance that maybe Phineas Pratt improvised or that maybe he based on something he saw in England, this might have been the germ that then germinated into the Hadley chest style. But properly speaking, Hadley chests that fit this typical form only came up several decades later. So the earliest known specimen of an actual Hadley chest is the M.A. chest, which was carved around 1680. And this chest is unique in that it is inscribed inside the drawer. There is a carved label saying, quote, Mary Allen's chest, cut and joined by Nicholas Disbro. So Mary Allen was the daughter of a sea captain named John Allen. And 
The maker was Nicholas Disbro, who lived and worked in Hartford and died in 1683. So we don't know for certain if this is really the first Hadley chest. It's just the oldest one that's ever been found. If it is the first one, then it means that the inventor of the style was Nicholas Disbro and that it came about first in Hartford in Connecticut. And it could not have been any later than 1683 when Disbro died. If one looks at the design of the chest, it is remarkably elaborate, detailed, and precise. Carving was clearly made using meticulous stenciling and precise tools. And this is different than from many of the later Hadley chests, such as the PW chest that we're talking about, which sometimes are more kind of freeform and impressionistic. They might have been made more quickly or by less skilled carvers, or maybe because that became more of the style of the time. But the basic template of the MA chest with the three coffered panels, the drawer, and all surfaces all covered in this elaborate scrolling tulip and leaf pattern, this style then spread up the Connecticut Valley from Hartford up to the smaller towns like Enfield and Pomfret and, of course, into Massachusetts, into towns like Hadley and Northampton. And as it went, it evolved. Sometimes later specimens had a different sort of look to them with more flowing scroll work and small tendrils, coiling tendrils coming off of the vines as well as the flowers and leaves. So as for these other later chests that came after the M.A. chest, they seem to have been made through several decades on up into the 1720s and maybe some as late as the 1730s. And who made them? Overwhelmingly, the makers are not named, and we don't know who most of them were. Most of the furniture makers in the colonies were probably illiterate, and they left no written records of their contracts. Most of the chests, it seems, were not considered important enough to note specifically in inventories of property. So when people wrote a will or their estate was inventoried, they didn't necessarily spell out which particular chest they were talking about. They might just say decorated oak chest. So they're really difficult to trace, and there's no specific information about them in most documents. And so specific information about who made them precisely when and where usually has to be found in family oral traditions or by stylistic matches to the work that one sees in other furniture or buildings, which, can, which historians can use to tr attribute specific pieces to the artisans who made them. But there are some that we do know for sure made some particular chests. For example, in the town of Hadley in western Massachusetts, it's one of these small towns on the Connecticut River, a maker named John Taylor who was said to be crippled, he reportedly made one for his own daughter, Thankful Taylor, in the early 1700s. In Hatfield, a small village that was originally part of Hadley, there were makers named Belding and Alice, a small furniture-making firm, Belding and Alice. And one of the partners, John Alice, made one for his own daughter, Lydia, who lived only from the years 1680 to 1691. And hence, we know in this particular instance that this chest 
the L.A. chest was made for a very young girl, no older than 11. In Enfield, Connecticut, there was a maker named John Pease, who was a carpenter and joiner, and he made one for his daughter, Mary. And in Deerfield, much further up the Connecticut River north of Hadley and Hatfield, a militia officer, the Sergeant John Hawks, who came originally from Hatfield, he made some in that area, and he may have learned it originally from Belding and Alice in Hatfield. So in total, historians estimate that probably about 500 to 600 Hadley chests were made, and about 250 of them have been specifically identified and survived today, though there may be others hiding out there in barns or sheds, who knows. So why did the Hadley chests come to light? Why did they become a focus of attention and desire in later years? Well, as I said, they were little noticed after the fashion died out around 1740. And rich families in the Connecticut River Valley changed their tastes with new opportunities. They wanted mahogany furniture made from this much finer and more lustrous tropical hardwood. And mahogany furniture could be obtained from carvers and joiners of very great skill in Boston, Newport, and Philadelphia. So after about 1740, that's what a person of means would buy or commission rather than an oak Hadley chest. And so through the years, through the late 1700s and the early 1800s, the chests were often disassembled. Pieces might be reused for various purposes. Often they were cut down in the sense that the legs were cut off so that they could then be used like normal blanket chests as couches to sit on or as trunks to travel. And this became more and more common as many of these families migrated out of the area. They would cut the legs off the the chests and use them as travel trunks as they migrated sometimes westward into the Great Lakes region or northward up the Connecticut River. So some of these families migrated north where cheap tracts of land could be obtained in New Hampshire and Vermont, and some Hadley chests have been found there. Also, two surviving Hadley chests coincidentally were found in Pasadena, California. So some of these New England families, as they moved to the Midwest, would then continue on all the way to California, and Pasadena is a town where some New Englanders ended up sort of recongregating. Some chests were prized and protected to varying degrees. They might be treated as heirlooms, sometimes noticed and remarked upon in family memoirs or correspondence. But often by the late 1800s, the families, even if they did value these chests, they knew little or nothing about them. They sometimes mislabeled them as dower chests or misattributed them and called them Mayflower chests. So increasingly, it was prestigious in the Victorian age to claim ancestry from passengers on the Mayflower. And so it 
was appealing to claim that these chests had been made in England and brought over on the Mayflower, though clearly that is not true of any Hadley chest. The so-called MN chest, which was made for Mary Noble, it remained in a family, and it was noted specifically in a pamphlet that the family published for an anniversary celebration in South Britain, Connecticut, in 1858, and they referred to it as a, quote, curiously carved oak chest. About 20 years later, it seems, the MN chest was no longer so noticed, and it was moved to the cellar and used to store potatoes. Later, the drawer was taken out of the chest and taken out to the yard to use as a feeding trough to feed sheep. And decades later, it then was found by collectors who were able to determine that the feeding trough was a Hadley chest drawer, which belonged to the chest in the cellar, and they bought it for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. (laughs) So this gives you a little sense of the dramatic reversal in fortune when collectors began to take notice of the Hadley chests. And this happened in large part because of the great fashion for colonial revival, which began really with the centennial celebrations in 1876. So this is when people are moving from the mid-Victorian to the late Victorian age. And there is, on both sides of the Atlantic, in America and in Europe, there is an increasing appreciation and celebration of folk craft and of handicrafts, in contrast to the enormous glut of mass-produced manufactured goods, which now sort of saturated middle-class households. So colonial revival, in a way, you could see as an adjunct to the arts and crafts and aesthetic movements in Britain at the same time. After 1876, there was a kind of craze for finding colonial handmade artifacts, many of which were just lying around in various states of disrepair in people's houses, cellars, barns, yards. And it happens that in 1883, a collector from Hartford, Connecticut, named Henry Irving, went out just sort of touring, motoring around, well, not yet motoring, (laughs) but poking around the countryside in the interior of New England. And at one point, he went to the town of Hadley, which I've mentioned before, in western Massachusetts. And in an old house, he found the R.D. chest, so a chest with the initials R.D. carved into it. And this chest, as it's been later determined, was made around 1710 for the young lady Rebecca Dickinson of Northampton in the typical style that we now call the Hadley chest. And he bought the chest and took it home, and in 1891, images and a description of the chest were published in a booklet called Colonial Furniture in America. And this short book was one of the catalysts that further ignited and spread the colonial revival craze. And this chest, because Henry Irving had found it in Hadley, the style that it exemplified came to be called the Hadley chest. 
So that's the reason. It doesn't seem it was invented in Hadley. Most of them were not made in Hadley, although some of them were. Most of them were not found in Hadley, although some have been. But it's because of this specific incident that the style has been called Hadley. And naturally, collectors interested and influenced by the colonial revival fanned out through the countryside all around Hadley in all directions, looking for more examples. And several of them were found being used as feed bins. That was not uncommon. Uh, One of them in Connecticut was bought by a collector, and the price for the chest was a rat-proof zinc feeding box that the farmer could use in place of the oak chest. Another one was found being used as a bed with a mattress on top. Another was found in Amherst as a house was being torn down in the year 1900. And apparently this chest had been bricked in to the wall of the house behind the chimney when the chimney was built. And a workman who was involved in the demolition of this house bought the chest for 25 cents. Another one that was also found in Amherst, the family had removed the legs and drawer and had taken the drawer apart to use the drawer front as a handle for a saw. So this is one of many specimens of Hadley chests where pieces of it have had to be reconstructed. So what about this specific chest that we're discussing now, the PW chest? Well, this chest did come to light in the early 1900s, like many others, and it is it does have a brief write-up and description in book, The Hadley Chest. And according to Luther, this particular chest is said, probably, presumably by the family, is, quote, said to have been for Polly Warner of Harwinton. Now, there may be truth to this family claim, that it was made for Polly Warner of Harwinton, but there are several problems with this that call it into question. For one thing, the town of Harwinton was not founded until 1727, and the chest, based on the style and the materials, does seem to be earlier than that, probably from no later than 1710. So this seems to be a discrepancy. Now, it's possible that... This could be simply a mistake. It might have come from some other town around the area in Connecticut. Or it could be that it was made for a young lady in a small village on the road between Hartford and Windsor, Connecticut, that later grew into the town of Harwinton. Now, as for the name of the young lady, Polly Warner... Well, Polly, there is no record that I was able to find in the extensive genealogical databases of New England. There's no instance I was able to find of a Polly Warner from the late 16 or early 1700s. Now, you may know Polly was traditionally a nickname for Mary. There were some Mary Warners who lived in the 16 and 1700s in Connecticut. Warner is a fairly common family name from Connecticut. And there were some Mary Warners, but none of them could be found in the family tree of the family that possessed the chest. And I'll talk about that later. So it was impossible to trace out precisely who this young woman would have been. 
But there was a Mary Warner of Waterbury, Connecticut, who lived from 1682 to 1705 and apparently died unmarried and without children. So it's possible that maybe the actual original owner of this chest might have been Mary or Polly Warner of Waterbury, not Harwinton, and that because she did not have children of her own, somehow the chest was passed to a distant relative or friend where it ended up in the family that owned it later in the 1800s. So we really don't know. There's no confirmation of a connection, but it may be that the PW is Mary Polly Warner of Waterbury, who died in 1705 at the age of 23, and hence it makes sense. She falls into the right chronological range if this chest was made around 1700, give or take a few years. So we don't know precisely when it was made, but the Winter Tour Museum, which currently possesses the chest, says that it was circa 1680 to 1710. Now, that's reasonable enough as far as the end of the range. I would say 1710 seems like a pretty good end date for when this chest might come from. But 1680 seems very early. As I said before, the earliest known datable instance of a Hadley chest is the M.A. chest, which was made somewhere between 1680 and 83, before Nicholas Disborough died in 1683. So if this chest was made in the early 1680s, it would be one of the oldest in existence, and that seems really impossible. It's much more likely that this chest comes from a bit later, from about 1690 to 1710, because the sort of looser scrolling form of the vines and the little twirling tendrils that come off of the vines are clearly from that slightly later period. As I've said, we cannot know precisely who made this chest or who it was made for, who is PW. It's very uncertain, and we don't have an exact date, although we can roughly guess it must have been about 1690 to 1710. But there is one piece of information that tells us a little more about the provenance of this chest and where it came from and where it ended up. And that is the fact that it is hand-labeled on the back with the name Ralph Meacham. So who is this Ralph Meacham? Well, he apparently was a man who was born in Connecticut in 1796 or 97 and later moved to Ohio. So this means that Ralph Meacham probably was an owner of the chest who inherited it or acquired it in some way through family in Connecticut before it ended up at the Winter Tour Museum. So Ralph Meacham's parents were Jaheel Meacham from Enfield, Connecticut, and Lydia Seymour Meacham. And Jaheel and Lydia and their family of several children journeyed from Connecticut to northeastern Ohio in the year 1806. And at this time, we're talking about before there was an Erie Canal, before there were very good, uh, easily traversable roads even, passing through New York and Pennsylvania to Ohio. So it was a very dangerous and risky journey. Ralph Meacham's mother, Lydia, Lydia Seymour Meacham, died on the way 
in what's now upstate New York in 1806. But the father and the children, including Ralph, did make it to Ohio and settled there permanently and uh, started a large Meacham family in northeastern Ohio. And really, this is not surprising. This makes a lot of sense. In this way, they were fairly typical of that time because that zone of northeastern Ohio, you know, at that time, it was simply part of the Northwest Territory. We now know it as the area around Cleveland, Ohio. That area was formally claimed by the state of Connecticut, and it was called the Connecticut Western Reserve. And so many families from Connecticut sort of migrated in tandem into that area and transplanted a lot of Connecticut institutions and customs into what's now northeastern Ohio. And there's still an imprint there of that period. For instance, that's why the big university in Cleveland is Case Western Reserve University, because it was set up by these colonists of the Connecticut Western Reserve. Ralph Meacham grew up mainly in this this Western Reserve that became Ohio, and it seems that he sometimes traveled back to Connecticut, maybe to visit or do business. And it seems that on one of these trips he met the young lady Emily Humphreys, whom he then married at Hartford in 1820. And they then set up their own household and began their own family back in Ohio. So you can see these connections back and forth between Ohio and Connecticut continued. But this fact means that the PW chest went into the possession of Ralph Meacham, possibly through his parents. It may have made that journey with the Meacham family in 1806 as a piece of travel furniture, although it does not have the legs cut off. Or it might have passed into his possession through his wife, Emily Humphreys of Hartford, who also was born and raised in Connecticut. So either of those is possible. And neither family tree, as far as I can find, contains any Mary or Polly Warner. So the exact route by which the chest made its way from Connecticut to Ohio is still unknown. But probably the chest then passed down in the Meacham family from Ralph Meacham, at least until the early 1900s. And somehow, we don't know exactly because the Winter Tour Museum has not responded to my email, so we just have to live with it. But somehow, it seems the chest was obtained by Henry F. DuPont, probably through a scout or buyer who went around northeastern Ohio looking for colonial New England artifacts. And it ended up in Henry F. DuPont's collection. So Henry F. DuPont was the heir of the extremely rich DuPont family, one of the wealthiest industrial families in the Gilded Age of America. And the DuPont family originally came from Switzerland and grew wealthy through gunpowder and then other chemicals. And Henry F. DuPont, as an heir, of this extremely wealthy family, which in the Gilded Age came to be seen more and more like the the Vanderbilts and J.P. Morgan as sort of parasitic to the Republic, he built up a colonial revival collection. 
he became one of the great proponents of the colonial revival, which makes a lot of sense as a way of remaking your image as patriotic and uh, celebrating the revolutionary history of the country in contrast to the Victorian extravagance of the Gilded Age upper class. So he built a large colonial revival mansion in Delaware, and he named the mansion and estate Wintertour after a city in Switzerland. And he collected colonial revival decorative art and furniture at Wintertour and made it into the largest collection of American-made, handmade art. And through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, he transitioned Wintertour into becoming a public museum where people could come and see this uh, fabulous collection of colonial art and furniture and gain a more positive image of the DuPont family. And it is today a major research site on American decorative art and really on early American life because it is the largest concentration of this whole form of historical source that is not written documents. And this particular chest, the PW chest, which one way or another was purchased and acquired for the DuPont collection, this one is on display in a period room, among other real or reproduced decorative artifacts from the early 1700s. And hence, this particular chest, the PW chest, is probably the most seen, most viewed, and most photographed Hadley chest surviving today. Although it is not the greatest specimen of the art form, there are others that are more finely finished or have more distinctive details. And it is also the, not the best documented. It does not have a mark or a record in a will or an inventory that tells precisely who made it or for whom. We only have this very sketchy and uncertain information about Polly Warner Harwinton. But nonetheless, because of this particular path that it followed from Connecticut to Ohio, to winter tour in Delaware, it is, you could say, the most visible celebrity Hadley chest today, and it is the best photographed. It has free, high-quality photographs of it available on the winter tour website, unlike hundreds of other Hadley chests, which are largely in private hands and cannot be viewed, and in many cases only have mediocre quality black and white photographs taken for Claire Franklin Luther's book in the 1920s, rather than the high quality, high resolution photographs of the PW chest that we can see today. So thank you so much for listening. Please post about the podcast, tell friends and neighbors. I hope to have more installments coming soon, including possibly interviews with other historians who have researched the very early colonial history of the Dutch Empire and the Caribbean and South America. Thank you.